You're listening to Podcast by Committee, produced by Starting Five Productions. And now, here's Andrew and Max Brill. Thank you, Mason, for the introduction, and welcome back to Podcast by Committee. I'm one of your hosts, Andrew Brill. And I'm Max Brill. And Max is remote again today. He's in Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan, went back just a couple days ago, and today is a special day. We're recording this again on Thursday. Today's Max's 22nd birthday. Happy birthday, Max. Thank you, Dad. Not only is today your birthday, but I guess, in a sense, you got a little bit of an early birthday present because the Big Ten announced that there will be football. And I know that that's a big deal for the players, the coaches, and everything. But what was the reaction like on the campus when you guys found out that the Big Ten is back and come towards the end of October, there'll be football to watch, although not in the big house. It was cautious optimism, I would say, on campus. I mean, everybody's really excited to have football back. Michigan obviously has such a big culture that surrounds the football team. It's not just football. It's more than that. I tend to describe it as a cult. That's just the school in general, not football specific, but maybe football specific too. But everybody's pretty pretty excited that football is going to be back. Uh, there are some people on campus, myself probably included, that think maybe it's not the best decision in terms of public health, but I'm not the one making the decision. I'm not on the hook for anything that happens, so I'm just going to sit on my couch and watch some football and uh, be completely pleased with it. So, you know, no complaints really i mean i uh, i'm excited to see the team back in action although a couple of guys have opted out dylan mccaffrey is opting out and looking for transfer nico collins has opted out so it, it will be an interesting look for the michigan football team this year but with all that being said i'm i'm pretty excited i'm excited to get back to watching college football it'll be interesting because i, I think that these guys opted out thinking look we're not going to play or we're going to play later than we thought we would but some of the opt-outs are now trying to opt back in. Penn State's tight end. And Ohio State has an offensive lineman and a cornerback who are projected to be first-round picks. They're opting back in or trying to opt back in. I don't know what the procedure is, and they don't have agents. So I would assume the procedure is just come back and enroll, I suppose, and go back to playing football. Yeah, I mean, it's... So the teams have obviously been preparing as though there's going to be a season. Tuesday morning when I got in, I drove by the football practice facility and saw a couple guys either walking in or walking out. I couldn't quite tell, but they were there. So the team's preparing as though there's going to be a season. And uh, as you saw, I'm sure, in the news, they're going to be testing these athletes daily, which I think is excellent. But what I think is not so excellent is the fact that the athletes are going to be tested daily, and there really still isn't any regular testing for, at least at Michigan, there's no testing for the students. I mean, there's some testing, but it's a, a student body of 40,000 students, and we're conducting about 1,500 tests per week. So that's not a very good ratio, and especially considering that there's about 100 football players, you include all the staff, probably 125 people who are getting tested seven days a week, right, because they're getting tested every single day. And that alone is half of the school's weekly testing capacity. So the fact that the university isn't testing more people makes no sense to me. And again, I'm not upset that football is being played. 
and I'm I'm actually quite excited for football to be played, and I'm testing those players every day. But it, it just is strange for me as a student at Michigan to have to kind of reckon with the idea that like, yeah, we really, I mean, the university doesn't care that much about us, right? Like we pay tuition and once they have that money, that's that. The football team actually brings in revenue for the school and that's why they've made testing them and getting the team back on the field such a high priority. Whereas for the students on campus, it's kind of like, you know, go fend for yourselves. We're not going to make or lose any money from, you know, not testing you guys. I think the interesting part is that football is the only sport in the Big Ten that's being played. Now, what does that say to the soccer player who really wants to play? And what does that say to the other sports? You don't mean anything to us. So we're not going to let you play. But football, that brings in revenue. So we're going to test. We're going to do everything we can for them. Now, a lot of these programs, I think, are going to end up losing recruits. Because if I was a recruit and I saw this going, a recruit that wasn't football. Like a Big Ten volleyball recruit. Like a Big Ten volleyball recruit. I'd be pretty ticked off that, hey, why are they allowed to play and get all these resources and testing? I get that they make money, but there's not going to be, you know, you're not getting 110,000 people in the big house. Yes, you're getting the TV revenue, which is the bigger deal, but you're only playing nine games. How legitimate is this season anyway in playing only nine games and playing only conference games? So if that's what you're going to do for the football team, how ticked off should I be if I can't kick a soccer ball around or I can't do my fall sport, but yet you're going to cater to these people and give them everything they want? I mean, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to money, right? The the teams that don't bring in the sort of revenue for the school that the football team does, which is to say there is not a single team that brings in that kind of revenue. All the other teams combined don't even bring that kind of revenue in. And, you know, as a, a Michigan baseball community member, right? Like I'm a student manager and analyst for the baseball team. We obviously want football to happen because football brings in so much money for the athletic department that their operations help fund our season. But, All of that is ignoring the fact that these other student athletes are student athletes too. And the coronavirus pandemic has really put a lot of things into perspective. And as much as any university likes to say, you know, whether you're playing football or volleyball or soccer or rowing or whatever, we treat all the student athletes the same on campus. Well, we can see from what's going on now that that's clearly just not true. Because if it were true, then the volleyball players and the soccer players and, and the students who student athletes who play non-revenue sports would get to have their season. And they just don't now. I'm a jaded person, I would say, which is really not a good quality to have as a 22-year-old. So even I can't say that I wasn't expecting something like this to happen. But it's just really sobering to see all of the student athletes who have dedicated their lives to their sports not get to play, but the football players do. And that's the argument that a lot of people have been using in this. Well, you can't take this opportunity away from the football players. They've been waiting their whole lives to play this season. They've been preparing for this season. It's like, you know, the volleyball players and the soccer players have been preparing too. And now they have nothing to show for it because their games don't bring in any money for the school. It is what it is. I just think it's kind of messed up. I I don't want to hear coaches like Nick Saban say this isn't about the money because as far as I'm concerned, this decision was all about the money 
Because, look, yes, I know they bring in revenue, and that's why they're getting the testing, and that's why they're going to get all these resources for the next however many months out of a school where I have to pay an extra 1.9% for my kid to take classes online, but yet these guys can travel not necessarily around the country, but around the conference on private planes and do how, you know, however they want and get whatever they want, but the other student-athletes don't get to have that. It's just, you know what? It's a big slap in the face to the volleyball player. It's a big slap in the face to the soccer player who gives just as much in the track, you know, the cross-country track runner who works his tail off just as much as a football player. But I got to ask you this, as as a, not an employee, but a member of the athletic department yourself in the Victor's internship program, you write a lot of articles about scholar-athletes. Now, these articles are not going to be written because these athletes aren't going to be competing. So it's interesting that you should say that because those articles actually are going to get written. But I I guess for this semester or this season, it's really just going to be the scholar part of the scholar-athlete. And I'm sure the stories will have a, a slant about, hey, you know, we're trying to figure out how to make the best of this situation and keep up with our training while also balancing online school. I think it's just as challenging as normal times because not only do you have all these hours you have to dedicate to training and school, but you also have to figure out how to do it in a safe way because you can't be around your team all the time. You can't just wake up and hit the weight room. You have to sign up for a slot. You have to figure out how you can train in a safe environment. So those stories will still be happening. It's just going to be instead of we're preparing for competition, it's we're preparing for whatever's next. And for the seniors, who, who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, in a lot of those articles that I, that I read, it's this person is, is a, a biochemical engineer and he or she has a, you know, a perfect grade point average and they're studying for you know, whatever master's degree. You're not going to get while competing at the highest level. It's the competing at the highest level that you're not going to get as part of that article. And the it, what I'd love for you to ask those athletes is, look, you came to the University of Michigan as a student athlete. You're now a scholar athlete, but you're not really getting the athletic part of that. But someone else is. I'd love to know their feelings about that. It's definitely a touchy subject. And to be honest with you, the Michigan Athletic Department does a great job with kind of training their student athletes uh, with respect to the media, which isn't to say that they're being brainwashed, but there's a really, really strong culture here about the team. I mean, we have that in the big house, a banner that says the team, the team, the team. And it's just all about doing what's best for the team. And you know, being the next guy up, the next girl up whenever that's needed. And so I think if you ask an athlete at the school, you know, how does it feel to have people who are in your same season playing, even though you aren't playing and you guys both came to this school to be student athletes, they're going to just tell you, hey, like we're just making the best of a a, a crappy situation and we're going to be ready whenever our number gets called to compete. And I think that's that's really where it goes. Like these athletes aren't going to give you that quote that's like, yeah, well, you know, we really resent the football team because like I said at the end of the day, the football team's operations fund a lot of this athletic department. Yeah. So if the football team doesn't play, it affects all the other sports because their budgets get affected. But what's going on now is that the football team is going to play, they're going to bring in some money, not as much as they usually do, 
any other student athletes just aren't going to get to play. So we'll see how that plays out. It's just such a strange situation. And I've said that time and time again, but it's a very, very strange situation. All right. So now we're going to bring on Kirk Herbstreet, a man who needs no introduction. He is one of the stars of ESPN's college football game day and hosted Monday Night Football as a play-by-play announcer this past Monday night and was quite excellent, I have to say. Kirk, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, glad to be with you. Hey, and congratulations. So the, They're giving you a second week, although it's going to be a little bit strange and you get to open Las Vegas' new stadium. Yeah, this will be a little bit different. You know, they the league, I guess, reached out to ESPN and, and came up with an idea to do something um, in addition to the normal Monday night broadcast. So, me, it was going to be Chris Fowler, but it's going to be uh, me and Reese Davis. We're going to um, kind of like what they do in the national championship game when they when they do a mega cast. We'll, we'll be on ESPN two, and we'll just be watching the game. I'll be in Nashville, and Reese will be back home in Connecticut, and we'll be on Zoom. And what'll be neat is throughout the entire broadcast, we're going to have a, a number of different guests that are going to just kind of pop in on Zoom and um, just hang out for 10 or 15 minutes and watch like Kenny Chesney may pop in oh, and nice. talk about the game for a little bit. And then after he hangs up, you know, who knows, it might be Peyton Manning might pop in. So it's, it's just going to be a bunch of, bunch of different guests that are going to pop in and just kind of see how that goes with the, the Raiders opening up their first game in, in uh, Las Vegas. Well, that'll be pretty sweet. But another thing that's opening up, very soon is the Big Ten college football season, which is a reversal from their previous position. And Kirk, obviously, you're an Ohio State guy. I'm a Michigan guy, so I'm going to be excited to see them back in action. But I, I want to yeah. get your take on what helped the turnaround here. Was it the athletes push? Was it the athletic directors? What was it that actually got the conference to make the change? And what are you expecting going forward? Well, I think there was a lot of things happening behind closed doors, you know, regardless of the the player, the uh, the players you know, talking about hashtag we want to play. And a lot of the, pl- the players, parents and a lot of the coaches were even vocal about wanting to play. And, you know, that, that was all great as far as social media. But as far as, you know, what the what the conference was dealing with, they needed science to go their way. They, they needed testing to go their way. And that's what happened. You know, they, they now have, they're going to have daily testing protocol, which is very different from where they were when they decided to delay the season. So that was a game changer really that allowed them to, to maybe move forward. There's also going to be um, different kind of scans now for the heart that will allow them to um, be less concerned about, you know, the potential virus and what it can do to the heart. And so I think those two things really helped. They, they do have some pretty strict guidelines. You know, if a player tests positive, he's out 21 days, no, no questions asked. So while we're all celebrating that football is back in the Big Ten, you know, you're one test away from having a player that could be out 21 days in three weeks. You know, you imagine if that's your starting quarterback or your best running back or your top receiver or whoever it might be. So these players – they're not living in a bubble, but if they're smart, they will they will basically live like they're in a bubble because they cannot afford uh, to test positive. Even if it's asymptomatic and they kind of roll their eyes, no big deal. The Big Ten doesn't look at it that way. It is a very big deal to them. And I think that's what's different between the Big Ten and the other conferences, that 21-day 
um, you know, restriction of, of being able to participate. And we'll see how that goes. Hopefully not a lot of players will get dinged, but, you know, eventually there will be a few. How strange is this season, Kirk, to even evaluate? Because you have a team like Missouri doesn't play Alabama for like another nine days, but they already know that 12 players are out because of COVID-19 protocol. So you you have these teams that are going to face off against each other, but one team is missing a pretty big chunk of players. Yeah, it's going to be, it's just going to be one of those years. I mean, it's, we're all going to have to, you know, put our, that's not fair, you know, type of behavior to the side for 2020. You know, you may have a, a five and O or six and O, let's just say Michigan or Ohio state or whoever it might be coming out of the big 10, but they've demonstrated that they're one of the top four teams and they can finish their season at six and O and they, they, they ended up missing a bunch of games because they didn't have enough players to play. And yet when they did play, man, they looked really good. The committee's going to have to evaluate them off of five or six games and say, I don't care that they didn't play nine games. You could just watch that team and know that they're one of the top four teams in the country. So there's going to be some really big arguments at the end of the year by fans and some really frustrated people because their players weren't healthy that week and we got beat and if we would have been healthy, we wouldn't have lost. And just, you can imagine the chaos, but I'm encouraging people. Let's just be grateful. We have football. Um, and let, let, let's maybe, let's just maybe stand down on a lot of the normal arguments and things that we get frustrated with, with subjective analysis. I, I, I just think that people have to, to kind of cut the committee uh, some slack this year because it's going to be a tough year. And what do you make of players opting back in? Obviously, they you know if they felt they weren't going to play, they was going to just leave school and concentrate on preparing for the draft. And now they're they're coming back. And and I know one of the Ohio State cornerbacks said, "No, no, I'm coming back." And they're still waiting for their old lineman to make that same decision. I guess that's a good thing for college football because you want to see the the best players on the field. Yeah, yeah. I, I've talked before the Big Ten was even involved in any of this. I was talking to an SEC coach about this about three weeks ago, just about how he's been able to try to keep his team together through all of it. He's like, man, it has been hard. He goes, one day I had two guys come into my office and say we're opting out, and then they left for a couple of days, and then they started to kind of reevaluate what they were doing. And man, I miss it. I, I want to come back, coach. Two days later, can I come back? I want to opt back in. And they come back in. They opted back in. And then three days later, no, 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 I don't want to do this. They opted back out. And, you know, you can opt in and out. This is very different from declaring yourself for the NFL draft. I think people are getting confused with it. This whole opt-in, opt-out has only been a, a new phrase ever since there's a, you know, it's pandemic. Right. And so as long as a guy like Sean Wade doesn't sign with an agent and start to go train in Phoenix or Miami to try to get ready for his pro day, if he hasn't taken those steps and he just, he just declared I'm opting out, I'm going to forego my last year of eligibility. That's all he said, but he didn't do anything about it. Then he's fine. He can opt in and opt out a hundred times if he wants to, as long as he doesn't sign with an agent and, and start to take uh, benefits and money or whatever it might be. And 
Sean didn't do that at this point, and neither did Wyatt Davis, an offensive lineman. He's already said he's coming back too. So both the, the high-profile players from Ohio State that, that said they would be coming out, uh, neither are opting out, both have opted back in or are good to go. Do you think we're going to see that this season? Do you think we're going to see guys flip-flopping or opting in, opting out, depending on a week-to-week situation? Or do you think it's going to pretty much stabilize once the games start going? I think I think it'll stabilize. You know, I, I think players now kind of kind of know where they are. Um, you may get a player here or there, an outlier that that maybe a buddy of theirs tested positive and they got scared and you know became. You know, I had a friend of mine back in March when this thing first started and, and he was on his back for 14 days with 101 fever and he was fighting every day, almost really for his life. So when, when a friend of yours has that, it becomes much more real as opposed to most kids that are 18 to 22. If you go by the data and what you read, you know, a lot of them are asymptomatic. Maybe they lose the taste of smell. Maybe they lose the taste, you know, the uh, ability to taste. But other than that, a lot of them have just that's why i think a lot of the college kids and max you probably know this they kind of just are like that's eh, no big deal now if, if anybody ever got it and got real symptoms you know you might then see a player say man heck with this man my buddy you know he's in the hospital or he's not doing well i'm i'm, I'm i don't want to do this anymore i'm out um just because they can relate to it a little bit differently when it happens to somebody they know and i know kirk that you've spoken to a lot of coaches over the past few weeks and uh, Lincoln Riley was pretty adamant about not putting any of his COVID players on the injured list. But what is your feeling about letting teams know, uh, uh, letting the opposition know, or letting any team know that you've got a play? Because there's always an injury report. But he's like, look, I'm not letting anybody know if my player has COVID and they're not playing. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's very different from the NFL where you have to you have to have a list, you know, players that are inactive, and, and you make that public before the game college it's always been a cat and mouse game i mean jim harbaugh is the king of it you know he'll you go to a press conference with him on a tuesday and you say uh you know how how's the left guard i, I saw that he limped off the field is, is everything okay i i don't know who you're talking about uh, you're starting left guard I, I don't even know who that is I, I didn't know he had a starting left guard like he he just plays very coy um he always has and it's, it's almost become a game with the college coaches, this is pre-COVID, uh, and right. now that we're in the now that we're in this quarantine world, and players that you know sometimes you know may test positive, or you may get contact tracing, and you may lose five or six more guys um, with contact tracing. So, uh, yeah, they're 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 going to continue more than likely, unless the media finds out about it, or the kid, you know, he could tweet something out. Hey, I'm sorry, I tested positive, or I'm I'm going to be missing. You know, the next two weeks or whatever it might be, that, that might be probably the better way of finding out what's happening more than the school releasing any information. I, I know, uh, you know, I wanted to ask you about your, your impassioned plea to America, which I have to tell you, we really appreciate. Max and I always talk about, you know, putting ourselves or not being able to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, but everybody Everybody puts on their pants one leg at a time. And he and I have this discussion about trying to understand someone else's point of view. And I, I know that, you know, he's my son, but you have four sons. And how do you explain to them what do you say to them to make sure as, as you know, growing young men, they understand that, hey, look, 
you know what? You need to understand everyone, not just people that look like you. You need to be passionate. You need to be considerate towards everyone. Well, you know, I, I've kind of raised, I was raised that way. Um, I didn't come from money uh, and, and I've, I've made you know, some money in my job and I've always looked at myself as a kind of a blue collar guy. Um, and I've always raised my kids to always look at themselves as just being like everybody else. And we, we treat people, um, everybody's the same. Now, if people are mean to you or they're, they're, they do bad things, then, you know, I'd rather evaluate that, you know, whether they're white or they're black or they're Asian or they're Hispanic. Um, we start with everybody's equal. Everybody's the same. And you want to be treated, uh, you want to treat people the way you hope to be treated. And since they've been, you know, probably like you with Max, since they've been three or four or five or six, they've just been conditioned that way. And just that's all they really know. And so um, for me, what's happening in America right now, our family, we've kind of always been in that lens. And so for me, these last two or three months, I've almost had to come out of my way of seeing the world and go to a whole different lens to to understand uh, some of these things that are happening. Because if you ask me if there is racism in America through my eyes and the way I've lived, I'd say, oh, of course, you know, there's the KKK and Mississippi and Alabama and outskirts, you know, varying states. But I wouldn't have looked at it like the stories that I've heard from some of my black friends and colleagues that have shared stories, you know, probably like a lot of people in America. And if all you do is sit and listen to these stories, you're like, how is that even possible? How can you be driving to your house and you're in the car and it's a nice car with tinted windows and you pull into your own driveway and the police pull you over because they have suspicion of why, why are you in this neighborhood? What are you, what are you doing? And the guy's like, I live here and I've never been arrested a day in my life. Why are your blue lights on? What the heck's going on? And it's cause he was black, you know? And that's why there was, they were just, they were maybe, I don't know, assuming that, Maybe he was here to, to do something bad in the neighborhood. It's like, no, man, I live here. I have a wife. I have four kids. Like, what are you doing? So when you hear stories like that over and over and over again, I'm not saying all um, black people, because have, have, I've, I've heard from a lot of black people that have said, hey, I've never felt any of these things. I just want you to know that people will tweet me and say all these things. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not a guy that generalizes and says all white people over here, all black people over here. Right. Obviously, there's all, there's all different kinds of stories and examples that people have. I'm just saying it is a fact that we have an issue with not just police brutality. Uh, we have an issue with how uh, black people are, are treated in certain areas in their lives. And, and that's the part that breaks your heart. And so with me, I, I didn't even realize I was going to have emotion like that. And I think it's just the pain I feel for my friends and the stories that I've heard. And I just want them to be treated like everybody else, you know, and, and I want their kids to be treated um, like everybody else. And hopefully we're making progress and, and making uh, taking steps in, in, in the right direction on that. 
Well, we appreciate the we, we appreciate that, and and I feel you. I mean, we 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 have those conversations, and we we understand, and it it just you kind of bang your head against the wall, asking yourself why why does this stuff happen? But right. you know, and until we get we can, we can get an answer but, to that, I don't think that we can get a solution. But you know, starting the conversation but is my, certainly. My, my my point on that is until and it was a quote I used from Benjamin Franklin until until the white people really start to see it and have empathy and compassion and realize man this is this is this is not happening everywhere not everywhere not every I'm a huge fan of the police in, in our country huge supporter of the police and the military not every policeman is is bad right they're ninety five percent of them are great. And they got to be embarrassed by what's going on. Um, and so I'm. people took some of my comments like I'm against the police. It's the opposite. I love the police. I just want us to understand that we as, as white people, we have got to recognize that we need to be involved in trying to help out, you know, and trying to help out in our own communities and and doing what we can. I was at did the Monday night football game the other night. The Pittsburgh Steelers, Mike Tomlin was telling me. How that he broke his team down into different units, and different units had different responsibilities within the Pittsburgh community. Um, and you know whether, whether it was education with this group, or you know going and talking to the police, and just trying to build relationships as opposed to dividing the country. Right now, we're, we've never been more divided right. uh, than we are right now as a country, and we've never been really, I think, hurting. Uh, the way we are as a country and you mix in COVID and quarantine and everything else. And it's just a very tricky time in the history of our country. And I, I think instead of dividing uh, one another, we need to actually pull together and try to listen to one another and be, be there for one another, as opposed to, you know, everybody's either way over here or you're way over there. I, I just don't think that's the way this country needs to move forward at all. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, Kirk, we want to, I mean, personally, just want to thank you for, you know, the insight that you brought in that, you know, kind of impassioned conversation that you had with the viewers and your colleagues. I, I, it really resonated with me. My dad obviously just said it really resonated with him. And on top of that, thanks for your time. We appreciate you coming on and uh, hope to have you on again sometime in the near future. And continued you, success, you my Max. friend. Thank you, guys. Hey, anytime. You guys, good luck with this. And anytime you need me, just let me know. Appreciate it. Thanks, Kirk. For sure. Thanks, Kirk. Max, it's always great to talk to Kirk Herbstreet, such a genuine, nice guy, down to earth, and always willing to give you some of his time. But let's switch gears now. And we were talking about some strange things going on in the NCAA. Well, another strange situation, I guess, that that we've encountered this week is in the Western Conference of the NBA, Max, the Denver Nuggets have eliminated a team that was considered a championship contender in seven games. They had to come from 3-1 down to do it. And I'm stunned. I truly am stunned because going into the, the bubble, the Clippers were, they were all talk. They were all talk about, you know, we're the team to beat. The Lakers are dysfunctional. We're going to come and, you know, we're coming out of the West. We're going to compete for a championship. They're they're at home. And I'm actually stunned because, you know, when you look at it, Doc Rivers has has lost 3-1 leads three times now in the playoffs. And the Clippers really laid an egg in Game 7. Yeah, I mean, I said this to you earlier 
this week when we were on the phone, watching that Clippers game was kind of like watching the Rockets-Warriors game seven, where the Rockets missed like 27 three-pointers in a row or something like that. Yeah, they missed 27 straight threes. And it, it just felt like the Clippers couldn't buy a bucket. Like, they, they missed every shot they took, it felt like. And that's not to discredit the Nuggets. The Nuggets are a great team. Nikola Jokic has been great. Jamal Murray, obviously a, a tank. But the Clippers were expected to be in the Western Conference Finals, for sure. And when the playoffs started, it was basically a foregone conclusion that the Bucks were going to come out of the East, and it was going to be Lakers-Clippers in the Western Conference Finals. And here we are, the Bucks are gone, the Clippers are gone, and it's basically the Lakers versus the field. And honestly, I think the Lakers probably should be favored against the field. The Nuggets have been playing really well, but it's it's the Lakers. It's LeBron. Like You can't compete with LeBron with the team the Nuggets have. And the, the Lakers are stacked. Like Let's not forget, it's not just LeBron. We're not talking about the 2007 Cavs. Anthony Davis is on that squad. Kyle Kuzma is a great, great role player. Like it, it, It's a really good team, and now they don't really have any of the top-level competition left. I don't know what you can attribute all the playoff upsets to, but it, it was a really tough loss for the Clippers on Tuesday night. And I, I guess we're just going to have to see how it plays out because now you have the Heat on the Eastern Conference side of the bracket and the Celtics. One of those teams was not expected to make it this far. I don't think either of those teams were really expected to make it this far. It was a five seed. The Miami's, Miami's up 1-0. Yeah. And then on the Western side of the bracket, the Nuggets, who definitely were not expected to make it this far, and the Lakers, who are really the only chalk team. It's, I would say, unprecedented, I think, in that the playoffs have happened in a bubble, and that's abnormal. And with no crowds, no home court advantage, the, all the travel that you usually have to deal with, that's eliminated. So I think maybe you can attribute some of the upsets to that. But even still, it, it's just been such a crazy ride in the bubble. And honestly, I am rooting for the Nuggets because I think they're a really fun team to watch. And it's been a really great story to see them come back from a 3-1 lead, 3-1 deficit twice. And we'll see. Maybe they can do it a, a third time. Who knows? Well, but hopefully they don't, they don't fall behind 3-1. But it was the Lakers... Are going to face a different type of team than they did in the Houston Rockets, and we'll see the the impact on their lineup. Now, you know, Javale McGee and Dwight Howard didn't get a ton of minutes. I think twenty three total minutes in that series against Houston because Houston's smaller. They run and gun, and they're all about the three pointer. So, but Denver with Jokic and and Jokic is 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 a little bit of a freak. He can hit the three. He can play inside, and if you try and double team him and say he'll pass out. So you know. He's got those three. He's got a complete game. He can play inside, outside, and and distribute the ball. So, you know, in terms of that, I think that Dwight Howard and JaVale McGee, they, they may need to come up big in this series trying to get Jokic under control because he kind of he, – he went off against the Clippers. And Jamal Murray, we'll see how they combat him and – but, you know, on the other side, you have those big men. You also have Anthony Davis. And LeBron James can take over just about whenever he wants. So this is going to be a really interesting series. One other thing One other thing before we go to the Eastern Conference, though. Rondo and Markeith Morris, who have been role players for the Lakers, played out of their minds so far in the playoffs. And I 
I don't know that you're going to get that type of production that you've gotten out of Rondo and Morris and some of the other guys on the Lakers bench that they have been getting. With that being said, the Lakers are definitely a deeper team. But the one-two punch of Jamal Murray and Jokic is going to be unlike anything the Lakers have seen to this point in the bubble. Right. And it's, it's a matter of who are they going to take away? It's almost like in the NFL where Bill Belichick will take away your best player. It's almost like Bill Belichick taking away a team's best player. Who are you going to take away? If you try and take away LeBron, you have Anthony Davis. You try and take away Jokic, you have Jamal Murray. So both teams are faced with that scenario. Now, in the NBA, it's a totally different game where, in my opinion, the more you pass the ball, the better opportunity you'll have at an open look or an easy look at the basket. So I'm interested to see that series and see how it plays out, especially with a different type of Denver team. They do have a little bit more time to try and figure out how to play that. And, uh, you know, as far as the Celtics and and, uh, Heat go, they play tonight. Yeah, I'm the Celtics Heat series. I'm really interested in watching Duncan Robinson just because he's a a Michigan boy. But that's going to be a really good series, too, in that I think the quality of play is going to be really good. I would be pretty surprised if the series didn't go to seven games just because we don't have the Bucs, who absolutely dominated the Eastern Conference in the regular season. We don't have that team in the East. And the Lakers-Nuggets series could go to seven games, but it also could be a, a Lakers sweep very, very easily. I don't really think we have that in the Heat Celtics series. No, I think that Heat Celtics series very well could go seven, especially since it's so even. I think that, you know, you're talking about a a Miami Heat team that's playing out of their minds and a a Boston team that was, you know, slated to get this far. So I I think, and and Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo kind of playing out of their minds, Bam coming up with a couple big blocks. But then again, you have Tatum, Cantor, and Marcus Smart. So you, you, this is a, a pretty even matchup. And, I, you know, this one very well could go seven. And this team could be tired out when, if, in fact, the Lakers decide that they're just going to pour it on and win in four. Yeah, and game two of this series is tonight. So depending on how that goes, we could actually have a completely different take on this tomorrow, right? Right now we're saying it could go seven games. But if the Heat go 2-0 and tonight, that completely changes the landscape of the series. Because, again, there's no home court advantage here. They're playing on the same court every night. So if the Heat are winning now, there's no reason they can't just keep winning. you know. And Tyler Hero has been great for them. Like I mentioned, Duncan Robinson has been great. Jimmy Butler, obviously, their best scorer. It's, it's going to be a lot of offense in this series. And for a team like the Celtics that's more scrappy and doesn't really have that number one scorer every game that's just consistently their top guy right in the heat that's jimmy butler but the celtics get a lot more all-around contributors we're seeing as i've mentioned time and time again on the podcast nba is becoming more and more of an iso league you want to get the hands and the the ball in the hands of your best player but if your best player doesn't match up well with the other team or is getting doubled like it's going to be difficult for the celtics to make a dent i think I still hate that ISO that ISO ball. I think ball movement is key, and the more you know, the Golden State Warriors, who will be back, by the way, once they get all healthy, I think that's the key to to winning is moving the ball and getting a, a much better open look than taking on a whole team all by yourself. But yeah, you're right. I think that uh, you know th- this series could go either way. Of course, like you said, if you we look at it after tonight's game, 
there there could be a completely different take if somebody walks away with it. Of course, the last game came down to a, a an overtime and a blocked shot and a a, a three pointer. So this is and a, another phantom call to actually tie the game, or which would turn into a technical foul and foul before the ball was inbounded. So this will be this is a, a really interesting series in that. You you think it couldn't go either way, and when you look at the West, you really think that the Lakers are going to come out of the West. But strange things have happened. Miami's making a run. Denver's making a run. Neither neither. How funny would it be if it was Denver against Miami? Well, it definitely wouldn't be what the NBA was hoping for in terms of ratings. I mean, people will still watch, but that would just I would be unprecedented almost. Yeah, it, it would be pretty wild. This has been another episode of Podcast by Committee with Andrew and Max Brill. Make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, TuneIn, Google Podcasts, anywhere else, we're there. And rate and review us on Apple while you're at it. Go ahead and give us five stars. And if you want to connect with us, we're on Instagram at podcast underscore by underscore committee and Twitter at pod by committee, where you can reach out to us via email, posts at podcastbycommittee.com. Thanks again for listening to Podcast by Committee, and special thanks to today's chairman of the committee, Kirk Herbstreet of ESPN's College Game Day and ESPN's Monday Night Football. Thanks again to Mason Pettit for the introduction, to Kevin McLeod for the music, and shout-out to Hal Aaron O'Feal for the graphics. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe.